I think I have shared this story with at least some of you in the past, but it is, it is one of my favorites. It, it comes out of Tony Campolo's writing. He, he describes the first black funeral that he ever attended. He was age 16. He says, a friend of mine, Clarence was his name, had died. The pastor was incredible. From the pulpit, he talked about the resurrection in just beautiful, amazing terms. He had us thrilled. He came down from the pulpit. He went to the family and he comforted them from the 14th chapter of John. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. Clarence has gone to heavenly mansions, said the pastor. And then for the last 20 minutes of the sermon, he actually preached to the open casket. Now that, says Campolo, is drama. He yelled at the corpse, Clarence, Clarence, he said it with such authority. I would not have been surprised that there would be an answer. He said, Clarence, there were a lot of things that we should have said. A lot of things that we should have told you. You got away too fast, Clarence. You got away too fast. He went down this litany of beautiful things that Clarence had done for people. And when he finished, he said, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, there's only one thing to do. Good night, Clarence. Good night. He grabbed the lid of the casket and slammed it shut. (laughs) Kimball says you could just hear everybody in the crowd just kind (gasps) of... Good night, Clarence. Shock waves flowing through the congregation. Preacher lifted his head. He said, you could see there was a smile on his, his face. He said, good night, Clarence. Good night, because I know that God is going to give you a good morning. And the choir stood and started singing. On that great morning, we shall rise, we shall rise. We were dancing in the aisles, Campolo says, hugging each other. I knew the joy of the Lord, a joy that in the face of death laughs and sings and dances, for there is no sting to death. For those who know God, love that line. How many folks need to know that joy? How many folks are finding it so difficult to breathe this morning because of the crisis that has ripped through their lives? How often over the years we have heard those words of the angel to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the city of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. It was news. And it was not news of just a little joy, not of possible joy. News of great joy. There's so little news of any joy, it seems these days. Friday is such a vivid reminder of the broken world in which we live. We desperately need to hear words that are fresh and new on this Advent Sunday. News of of great joy. 
joy that is wonderfully tied to the text that we have been reading together on these Advent Sundays. Words of promise. Spoken by God through his prophet Isaiah at least 500 years before Jesus was born. Descriptions of the one to come. The one that the Savior, that the angel announced was the Savior that night on the hillside. The one who was to come. Good news of great joy. So let's stand together. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9 again. Those ancient words that we've been reading together. Here we go. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Amen. Oh, go ahead and be seated. Is there something in there that just cries out to your spirit? Ah, justice. Things being set right. Somebody in control who does all things well and their term will never expire. Four wonderful descriptions of who the Messiah would be to his people. We've looked at the wonderful counselor. Remember words that were spoken to people who were living in very difficult and uncertain times. The wonderful counselor was the one who would have a plan for his people. And it was not just any plan, but it was a plan that flowed out of the goodness of his character. And it would be a good plan for his people. How about us? Do we live in uncertain times? Do we live in pain-filled times? Times that are desperate for so many. Yeah. And I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves again and again in this Advent season is, who are we listening to? Whose plan? Whose word? Which counselor is speaking into our lives those words that bring comfort and hope and peace to our desperate We must, my friends, we must listen to the one who has great love for us and a great plan for our lives. And and what we've learned is that it can be no other way because, because he is good. Because God is the definition of goodness. And out of him flows goodness to his people. He's also the mighty God. Learned that those words can be interpreted the strong one, the valiant warrior. And, and I suggested to you last Sunday that, that, that this one is quite different, perhaps, from, from what conventional wisdom might think, what we might 
run to initially in our thinking. The mighty God. Yes. Love that image. One who gets it done. One who does God-like things. One who conquers and sets things right. Yes. That's what the Israelites were hoping for. 500 years, at least. Some historians say more like 700. It took for the one to come. And when he did, a baby. In a little no-name town, in a manger. What kind of a Messiah is that? What kind of a rescuer is that? Lives a fairly no-named life and dies a criminal's death on a cross. What kind of a Messiah is that? Not a good one. Not much good at all unless unless you have the things of God in mind. Remember, we've been challenged with Peter's perspective on who Jesus was. Jesus started talking about suffering and death. Peter shifted gears and said, oh no. No, that's not the kind of Messiah. That's not the kind of rescuer. That's not the kind of warrior we're looking for here. The things of God. And I would say that the plan that unfolded, that God would choose to rescue lost and broken humanity in this way, it shouts volumes to us about His mightiness. You ever find it challenging to humble yourself before others? To let them have their own way, to let them be right, to let them choose first. Humility does not come easily to our hearts. What does the life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, say about the mightiness of the character of God. And it should speak volumes to us. Those who claim to be his follower, for in fact, it becomes, I think, the pattern for our lives. In his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, Gregory Boyd contends that that in the 4th century, when Constantine recognized Christianity and made it a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire, Boyd says that was a day of enormous loss for the church. Enormous loss. Because he believes that was the day in which the church picked up the sword and laid down the cross as its only source of transforming the world. A 
power of God through humble, self-giving sacrifice. If that doesn't reveal the mightiness of God, then I don't know what. And of course, we all know there's coming a day when he is going to show himself mighty. Woohoo! In a big way. But that's his day. That's his time. That's his choice. And it's all according to his plan. And in the meantime, our challenge is to live like Christ. To live in the power of the mighty one. Lives of humility. Lives of surrender. Lives of sacrifice. So that the church might once again experience its transforming power. The power that flows from the character of God into the lives of his people. The character of the mighty God that is revealed in the life, the death of Jesus is a reality that simply ought to grab our attention again and again and again. That God who is the creator of all things, would, would actually humble himself ever for any reason, least of all for sinful, rebellious people, that's absurd. Makes no sense. That's the mighty God. And you know that the greatest fear in all of my life is familiarity with spiritual truths. And I can see it on your faces. Yeah, yeah, we know this. But time's the game. My friends, there are two seasons in the year that we have got to fight familiarity that numbs our brains to what is absolutely incredible. This is one of them. God broke into humanity and made himself vulnerable and humble. And the Passion Week ending with Resurrection Sunday. These are the two seasons of the year that ought to just make our heads spin every year. We dare not let some fat, jolly guy who rides around in a sleigh or a bunny that lays chocolate eggs steal the significance of these seasons. Golly, come on, folks. This is amazing. It is Christmas. Thank you, John. Oh, let Advent and let Passion, the week of Passion, the celebration of Resurrection Sunday, remind us of the humility of God that was laid bare for a lost and broken world. Wow. Okay. So on to our third description of the one who is to come. And again, this morning I want to ask you, to be a resident in Jerusalem for just a moment, five, six, seven hundred years before Jesus is born, and you're standing there with a friend in the streets of Jerusalem, and you're listening to some crazy-looking guy named Isaiah talk about somebody who is to come. And you hear him say something about that one who is to come being the everlasting Father. The everlasting Father. 
So you turn to that neighbor who's standing there in Jerusalem with you, and you say, what's that all about? And see what your neighbor says. Go ahead. Ask your neighbor. Everlasting Father, what does that mean? What do you hear there? Okay, we ready? So, what would your neighbor think when they heard that? Everlasting Father, what's that about? Okay, okay, good. Yeah, good observations. Yeah, praying to God as Father. No, not so. Not so in, in, in the Old Testament, predominantly. Oh, say more. Yes. Yes, yes. Did you hear that? They wouldn't pronounce the name of God. And, and, and Father? That's unthinkable. That, that, that's, that's a closeness that's just inconceivable. What else did you hear? Yeah. These folks are dead and gone. Yeah. All kinds of questions that it stirs up. Yeah. Yeah, that ties back into what Lee was saying. Too. I mean, Jesus going around referencing God as his father. Wow. They were picking up stones. Yeah. Romans 5. Sure. Mm, yeah. Renewed. Yes. And I think, I think one of the things that we struggle with about that is because we're hearing this through a theological filter. You know, we, we think it's a bit strange. We hear the description of the one who is to come, and, and we know that that's Jesus, and we know that theologically that's the Son. And, and so to hear him described as the everlasting Father, we, we wonder perhaps a bit, how can that be? And I think the only way to, to get around that is to turn off your filter and to hear this as we've been hearing the other descriptions. It is a statement of the character of the one who is to come. It is a statement of the kind of life and relationship that flows out of the one who is to come. It's, it is a statement about the character of God. Because the one who is to come, we know that as Jesus. We know He is, he is God. And so, if you by chance were to glance at the sermon title this morning and probably have the reaction that you often have to the sermon titles, what on earth is this? Here it is. I think that there should be a great joy in knowing what we know. There should be a great joy, and it needs to surpass the looks on your faces. There needs to be a great joy in knowing what we know. I want to suggest to you this morning that, that, that living on this side of the life of Jesus reveals to, reveals to us that, that the ancient Israelites... Didn't know. We know something that they didn't know. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It did. But they didn't know it. They didn't live in it. They didn't experience it. And that is the fatherly love of God for His people. There are, there are references, there are mentions of it that flow through the Old Testament. But by and large, 
There's an intimacy of relationship between God and His people that Jesus revealed, that He modeled, that He taught, that the ancient Israelites didn't consider. Because as Lee pointed out, it was not even thinkable. My friends, the blessing of living on this side of the story and the life of Jesus is amazing. God was not referred to as Father throughout the Old Testament. And yet Jesus invites those who are his followers to speak to him as Father, to refer to him as Father. And when we took Cameron back to Colgate in late summer, there was a there was a, a, a young Jewish couple that was there on campus walking around, and we happened to kind of pass by them at this one point. They had two little kids that were running around, two little boys, and I kept hearing one of the little boys go, Abba, 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 talking to his daddy, Abba. And I thought, that's, that's what Paul's directive is to us in Romans. We have been given the privilege of knowing God as Abba, as Papa, as Daddy. Wow. So, let's just for a few minutes together consider the two words that make up this description that Isaiah gives to the one who is to come. The first one, of course, the word everlasting. Now, the meaning is pretty obvious, right? It has to do with the existence of the life of God. God's life never ends. God's life never began. No beginning, no end. He just was, he is, and he always will be. And that hurts my head. We can't conceive of that. But what that means is that whoever God is, He is always there. He will never go away. Which means that as a father, he never goes away. That ought to be a thrill for us. The intimacy of relationship that we have been blessed with never goes away. In fact, just let your mind try to run through the billions of years that lie ahead of us in eternity and ask yourself questions about the intimacy of relationship. Will we ever exhaust the riches of who God is as our Father? Not ever, not in all of eternity. Unlike my kids who exhausted the riches of their dad in just the first few years of their life. You know? What a letdown. Trust me, it's not happening in eternity. He is the father that never goes away. And and admittedly, for some of us, that creates, I think, an immediate challenge because, because our reference point is an earthly father. And and for some of us, that has not been a good experience. We've had fathers that we wished would go away. Or they're gone and 
We're not sad about it. So for some of you, the very word father, it just evokes these images of emotion and, and, and painful stuff. And as hard as that may be for some of us, God as father is still one of the most precious descriptions of who he is to his people. And we have to battle through some of the crud that we carry with us in relationship to our earthly father figures. Push through to see who this God is revealed to us most clearly in the one who comes and reveals to us the character of the everlasting father. Jesus revealed for us that character again and again and again. And, 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 and one of my favorites has always been the story of the prodigal son recorded in Luke's gospel. That is an outrageous story. And, and most of you know that, I'm sure. He told it in a society where, where the father ruled the roost. Father ruled the household. It was a patriarchal culture. And the father was worthy of great respect. And that's exactly what many fathers in that day communicated, that they were worthy, regardless of the kind of life that they lived. They were worthy. The honor of the father figure was of must, uh, just, just significance, significant importance in Jesus' day. And, and so what did Jesus do in that familiar story? He describes a father who has been rejected by his kid. Jesus' day, a father rejected by his kid could be stoned. And nobody would think twice. This father rejected by his kid, greatly shamed. Greatly shamed by the life that his son went off to live. Choices that he made brought shame to his father, brought shame to the family. You know, and, and here's an interesting statement. That when he asked for his inheritance ahead of time, he was expressing a sentiment of, I wish you were dead. Because that's when kids got their inheritance, is when dad died. And so the father accepts that and gives him his inheritance. And then how does Jesus describe the love of that father? His kid's out living in a pig pen. And the father is watching. He is waiting. And when his child shows up on the path home, finally, after realizing that he's been a fool, what's the father do? He runs to his kid. There could be nothing more undignified in that culture than a father who would run to a reprobate child, throw his arms around him and kiss him and restore him to the family. And as the son begins to rehearse his speech, the father just cuts him off and says, we got a party. We got a party. My son has come home. I don't know what you think about that, folks. But Jesus told the story. 
Jesus, the one who knows the heart of his father better than anyone, told the story. If we do not believe that God's love for us is eternal and constant and unchanging, I think we find ourselves in a place where where we struggle to, to really appreciate and live out the relationship that he has called us to. God's love. If we think somehow that our actions determine the intensity of his love, then we are, we are cheating ourselves out of what I think is the life-transforming truth of Scripture. The verse that so many of us know since childhood, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. It doesn't say that God felt obligated to his world. It doesn't say that God somehow owed us a second chance because we had blown it. It doesn't say that God looked down and saw potential in us. It says that he loved us. Even while we were sinners, Christ came and died for us, period. So, let me just suggest real quickly three practical blessings of, of God's unchanging love for us. First, He's a Father who is always watching over us. He's always watching over us. Teresa and I, having five children, lost a couple here and there over the years. Those are terrifying moments. I remember losing Jordan at a rest stop somewhere in South Carolina on our way to a family trip. Cameron picked up his rake one day at age three and went for a stroll around the neighborhood. The kid disappears, you know, and the conversation is, where's Cameron? I don't know, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Oh my goodness! Where's the kid? That conversation never happens in heaven. It doesn't. The father always knows the whereabouts of his children. Oh, I love that. Always knows the whereabouts of his children. And that means that he always knows about the hard things that are a part of our lives. He is never surprised. As parents, we can be surprised by the hard and painful experiences that come into our kids' lives, and there's that sense of, oh, no. Not our Heavenly Father. He is never surprised by the hard things that we face. And in fact, second important truth, I think, to remember about who this father is, he uses those hard and painful experiences to discipline us and to grow us. (laughs) I used to say to my children, 
How many of you have said this? You know, this is going to hurt you more than, hurts me more than it hurts you. Never true. <laughs> Never true. Because so often, my discipline was a misplaced discipline. So often, I was punishing a child because I had been inconvenienced. Or because I had been wronged. I had been disobeyed. You know, there's a lot of us sometimes that's tied up in our discipline of our kids. Because if I don't raise a good kid, what's everybody going to think? God has none of that baggage. God's determination is to mold and to shape and to use the hard stuff in our lives to bring about what the writer of Hebrews says is, is righteousness. No discipline for the present is, is good. It's not pleasant. The writer says none of us enjoys it. But God brings those things into our lives so that the right time out of us will be reaped a harvest of righteousness. Translate that as Christ-likeness. He is growing us into the image of his son. There's a third thing that, that this father does, not only by molding and shaping us and forming us through the hard stuff, but, but he also he teaches us, teaches us through the disappointments in life. How often does life just not go the way we've planned? You'll never hear an apology from heaven. Because he's teaching, if we'll listen. My first car was a 1959 Ford pickup with a blown engine. It was the only car my dad would let me buy. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> I had some better things in mind. You know? <laughs> really, Dad? Yep. <laughs> and then, out of that experience, we spent several months of my senior year in high school rebuilding that old engine. The time with my father was precious. I had no idea. I was a 17-year-old idiot who had visions of grandeur. Dad had visions of growth and education and learning. Let me impart something of value to you as my son. I didn't appreciate it then. When's the last time that, that you, as a child of God, did some reflecting on some of the, the discouragements and asked yourself, what have, I, what have I learned? How have I grown? That's what the everlasting Father does. He persists, and He's always there, and He doesn't go away. And as hard as that may be for some of us to think of, then we, we need to flip the coin over and say that means that his love and his faithfulness and his goodness and his character development carrying us all the way into eternity never goes away either. The everlasting Father. Father who's intimately involved in the lives of his children. He loves his children. He loves being with his children. 
He loves being the center of attention of his children because he is worth their greatest attention. The everlasting love. Well, praise team, come on up and prepare to, to lead us as we respond. The psalmist says this, my friends. To God, he says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. Maggie defined joy for us in the video. We heard things like warm fuzzies and felicity. But we also heard a sense of well-being. That's where joy begins. When we have a sense that all is well, and all is well because I don't have a deadbeat dad. I have a living, attentive, perfectly loving, everlasting father. Praise be to his name. Amen.